recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Saturday, March 2nd, 2013. This is Christagenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Last September, last September 14th, I had asked pastors Mark Downey and Ken Land to fill in for me and, and um, that they wanted to discuss the Constitution and did a program called Is the Constitution Christian? At that time, I had promised them a part two of that episode and some months later, here we are. Tonight I have Again, pastors Mark Downey and Kenneth went with me, and we're going to discuss what well, well, they are going to discuss. It's their program. I, I might have a few things to run my mouth about, I'm sure. But they are going to discuss part two of Is the Constitution Christian? Hello, Mark. Hello, Ken. Praise Good evening, Bill. Hello, Brother Bill. Uh, thank you very much for having us back on the show. It is certainly a pleasure. I agree. Well, the pleasure is mine. Okay, um, I have a few thoughts I'd like to get off because it's basically your program, and, and I'm going to um, I, I got a few things to say about Thomas Paine maybe and Heim Solomon going by Mark's um, Mark's outline, and and they're not important. It's your program, but but I, I just like to say that my my personal opinion. I, I wasn't here for the first program, of course, and and um, I know that we we're going to offer a synopsis of it tonight, I believe. But I think it's a huge distraction today for American Christians to look back at the Constitution in an attempt to find fault for the ruin of the Republic. We never defended the Constitution we have. So we are kidding ourselves if we think we would have or even could have defended any other Constitution. And those who seek to denigrate the Constitution usually take it entirely out of context. And clowns like Ted Wieland offer us polls giving choices between the Constitution and God's law. Yet the Constitution itself was never intended to be a replacement for God's law or any law. It was only a treaty regulating the relationships between 13 sovereign states, each with their own laws. And if we can't defend the Constitution we have, what makes us think we could have done any better with any other Constitution? That they've trodden over the one we were left. And, and, and my final statement, which just, it, it just slipped my mind. Basically, if these people think that we could have a constitutional convention and get any justice and righteousness out of it, they haven't paid much attention to elections lately. Now, that's all I had to say. And, and Mark, it's, it's your program. Well, uh, I wanted to open with a prayer, if I may. Yes. Uh, Father in heaven, bless this uh, second edition of our examination and determining the Christianity of the uh, U.S. Constitution, and thank you for our uh, presentation in part one. May your Holy Spirit direct our thoughts and words again to the truth, and let it be received in the hearts and minds of our fellow Israelites uh, with thanksgiving for our heritage and our inheritance from you. Uh, We pray that our destiny will overcome the adversaries of history and that Scripture be fulfilled as the fathers turn to the children, as our founding fathers turn to the children of Israel. And today, the heart of the children turn to their fathers, that is, the modern lost sheep turn to the patriarchs of Israel's past. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Well, I might say, Bill, that um, I've been following your uh, Paul bashing series on Saturday nights, and the um, the Constitution is, is very similar to uh, those that bash Paul. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, misrepresentation and uh, uh, outright uh, intellectual dishonesty uh, coming from several camps, uh, as we'll see tonight. Well, well, that's true. They want to blame Paul for the universalism of the church, and they never understood the Paul we have. It's the same. It's the same problem. You're right. That's a good observation. Well, I believe Ken was going to do a um, short synopsis of um, what transpired six months ago. So, Ken, would you like to uh, start by refreshing people's memory? Um, well, well, sure. I, I think that the two of you have hit the nail on the head as far as the, the point, you know, of misunderstanding. Um, a main point to consider from our discussion of Part 1 is that some very dedicated Christians today have been misled into a, a misunderstanding of what the original 1787 Constitution is. Uh, you know, it's always, a, it's always a lot easier to dislike something than it is to understand it. So I think if an understanding of the Constitution can be solidly laid out, then, you know, people today would say, well, how about that? Uh, God did bless our American heritage after all, and I don't have to go around hating the beginning of my country uh, just because I'm a Christian constitutional American. So uh, that's where we are today. And, uh, you know, contrary to some things that we see posted on, on some uh, few Internet blogs and websites, the recorded law of that era speaks volumes that the Constitution it was not a document that changed any aspect of Christian law, and uh, which had already been in effect for what? Well, probably well over 150 years in America. Uh, the Constitution was clearly and intentionally worded and drawn up as an inheritance trust for a family of people. That's, that's all it was, uh, plain and simple. It did not form any new radical government that we hear about, we hear those kind of claims, you know, uh, that it opened the land for all people from all over the world. And we know that that, that is not true. That's not, a, that's not a correct claim against the Constitution because as the preamble states, the government union was exclusively, it was exclusively for a certain people and their posterity, or namely, you know, to be quite plain about it, and blunt white Christians since it was only white Christians who signed the agreement in the first place. So, you know, no other racial group of people are in that agreement because they didn't sign it. Now, that's not a message that would be popular with the um, multicultural masses these days, but that's the truth in both law and in fact. So um, what we come down to is the bottom line is that we were being guided into our rightful property inheritance. All right, we're being guided by the divine hand of God Almighty, and who else could do that? And, you know, the other people of the world have their places. In, in Deuteronomy uh, 32.8, it reads and tells us in the scriptures, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. You know, and, and of course, as... Uh, 
anybody that's been around for, for any amount of time searching the scriptures through the uh, Kingdom Israel message, the white Saxon Christians who migrated here from Europe were the Israelites of old, or our ancestors. And they set up a, a sanctuary nation here in North America uh, for whom? For their kindred family. And it was according to the uh, promises of God in Bible prophecy. Now, getting into law, the Constitution was merely a sub-document, okay? It was a sub-document in the ongoing Christian commonwealth that was uh, already in existence. And I might add, as the, as the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation also were sub-documents in, in the uh, same Christian government of the land. Now, these documents each served a purpose, and the purpose of the Constitution was plainly to declare and to decree a family trust. And, of course, that's to be passed down to their heirs. And it had nothing to do with forming any type of uh, so-called new government to supersede the Christian rule of the land in those days. <clears throat> what they were doing, we might want to ask this question, what were they planning with this trust? Well, what they were holding in trust to be guarded and handed down to the, uh, what we, I just mentioned, the posterity family line, or the, the children and their children's children, was the blessings of liberty, as the, uh, you know, the preamble makes ever so clear. Now, this was all in accordance to God's laws of what is known as descent and distribution as found in the scriptures. Now, I would suggest, you know, if, if there's some listeners, we can't go into it, repeat two hours that we did last time, if there's some listeners who, who might have missed part one uh, from last September explaining the Christian inheritance trust nature of the Constitution, uh, part one, I believe it's on, on both of, of your sites, part one has been archived as an MP3, am I correct, on both uh, Pastor Downey's site and on, on uh, Bill on your site here? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, you both have it on, so the listeners can go there and catch up on uh, you know the first two hours of what we talked about here. And on that show, you know, we expressed and talked about a concern that many people, even Christians, have been listening to um, humanists and liberal sources that have basically they've been shouting down any teachings but their own. Now, for example, we always hear the misquote that the uh, founding fathers <laughs> didn't honor God because the set, they set the government up on, uh, you know, the phrase we know, we the people. But these were Christian people, were they not? And, uh, you know, what did the founding fathers themselves actually say about the we, W-E, you know, that some people complain about? You know, how did the we of the Constitution uh, view themselves in their own origin of government? Well, let's, let's take it from here. It's always good to find out what an expert on, on any matter says, uh, uh, better yet, Let's see what a first-hand expert says, okay? And I'm going to cite a quote here from, from one of the signers of the Constitution. Uh, American founding father John Dickinson, um, you know, this, this fellow was a, a constitutional convention delegate from the state of Delaware. And uh, he signed both the Articles of Confederation and uh, the federal Constitution. Now, Here's what Mr. Dickinson, a, a Constitution signer, had to say about our God-given rights. Now, this is from a writing, collected writings of his, uh, entitled Political Writings of John Dickinson, uh, 1801. John Dickinson, who signed uh, the first two documents, sub-documents in the, uh, the ongoing Christian government, John Dickinson says this about the, about the we, 
referring to his uh, partners at law who drew up the Constitution. Quote, Kings or parliaments could not give the rights essential to happiness. We, then he says the we, those, those of his patriot friends who were writing and drawing up the Constitution, kings or parliaments could not give the rights essential to happiness. We claim them from a higher source, from the king of kings and lord of all the earth. They are not annexed to us by parchments and seals. They are created in us by the decrees of providence which establish the laws of our nature. They are born with us, exist with us, and cannot be taken from us by any human power without taking our lives. End quote. So, the other signers of the Constitution, they, they were likewise, you know, they were men of good Christian character, and in the course of history, what were they doing? They were operating in according to God's timing. Well, this gets into a little bit. One of you, both of you, mentioned about um, the, the fathers and and the children and the relationship that the generations have between themselves, and and timing as to when and where God places us. You know, it means everything. Um, we know in Ecclesiastes three one it says, we all know this this famous verse, to everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. So, in other words. Uh, what do the scriptures say is God's plan, or, or what's God's purpose and timing for His children? You know, for the people who desire to live in obedience to the uh, divine kingdom laws of government. Now, the answer is going to be found in one word, and that's the word administration. Uh, God's laws, you know, as as we know here on the show, we've gathered together, you know, for this, and, and some of the basics. There are some basics in the. Uh, Kingdom Israel identity message, and one of them that the people share, we share, and there's no disagreement about this, is that God's laws remain the same. They are still the same. You know, they are eternal, eternal um, statutes and judgments and commandments. But the story of our race of the Bible tells us that God has a purpose in adapting exactly how those laws are to be enforced, and that's where we get into administration, how they are to be administered. Now. What has transpired in the administration of the divine law is that uh, God Almighty has seen fit to advance it to complement our history. Okay, now if we just you know follow this this line of thinking here, we're not riding donkeys to work anymore, are we? And, and we're not communicating just by by paper letters or sealed you know uh, writings with wax wax envelopes. So, what do we find in the scriptures and the story of our of the history of our race? We find the kingdom administration first with Adam, uh, then it goes on to the Old Testament patriarchs, then the judges, and uh, next the kings of Israel and Judah. They administered God's laws, and finally, what do we have? After the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the administration for the kingdom law is, is where? It's in the New Testament commonwealth, which is the body of Christ, his family in the earth. And, and that's the congregation or the congress of God. Now, uh, you know, uh, brothers, as things become self-evident as to where we find ourselves in, in this New Testament commonwealth jurisdiction, we should be discovering that we are ruling uh, in the likeness of our eternal king himself. Is that not correct, as, you know, as, as far as the form of administration goes? Mm-hmm. What do we have in scriptures on this? The prophet Isaiah knew this format and knew where God was going because, because he had divine, you know, divine revelation, 
In Isaiah 33:22, it tells us about God, and it says this, For the Almighty is our judge, the Almighty is our lawgiver, the Almighty is our king, he will save us. Now, that is judicial, legislative, and executive qualities of our family king, God Almighty. Okay? So what do we have? Well, it's also the three branches of American government that our Krishna founding fathers implemented. Now, bringing this up into the, into the New Testament days, we talked about Paul mentioned about or, uh, Bill mentioned about the Paul Bashers, and and that's a that's a sad story in itself. But I'm going to quote from Paul. Paul drives home this point in in Philippians two thirteen, and Paul says, "For it, now remember this: we're talking about Isaiah says that 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 um, the administrative characteristic of God Almighty is executive, legislative, and judicial. What does uh, Paul say here in Philippians two thirteen? Paul says." For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, as far as we're speaking of government in the likeness of God, it means that the executive, legislative, and judicial form of administration that that Isaiah spoke of is what? It's now working in us, God's sons and daughters. Okay? So, you know, timing is everything, and, and exactly... What form of administration means everything as to how, as to how we're going to uh, obey God's divine laws. Now, the scriptures tell us that God in his wisdom knows exactly how he's brought us along in history. And, and he knows how he's gotten us where we are today. And his word teaches that we are now to be gathered in an assembly of a commonwealth formatted upon Christian principles. Now, that, that's where we're going to find the divine protection to administer God's laws. Everybody wants to obey God's laws. We, we agree on this, you know. So uh, the original states were Christian commonwealths. And what happened? When they finally met as, as uh, a federal body, it was still a larger commonwealth. So those that say they want to trash the Constitution uh, in order to better find God's laws in reality, they're doing just the opposite. They are unwittingly running counter to God's good plans. They're running counter to his precise timing. And most of them are just unknowingly resisting God's helpful hand upon us to enforce his laws through the Commonwealth Administration, which is meant for us today. Now, taking this another step further, Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 2, because in verses 12 through 22, Paul says this, quoting Paul, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But we are made nigh by the blood of Christ, and are no more strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints. End quote. So Paul says that, uh, you know, his teaching here, along with being redeemed from our sins, what does he say? We are redeemed by the blood of Christ into the citizenship of the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this is where God's will and timing has us right now, and he knows what is best for us. Now, let's catch this up and bring this up to American law, if the divine hand was upon American law. Well, well Ken, Ameri- can I... Yeah, go ahead. Can, can I get something in here? Because it goes so well with what you've just laid out. Right. And, and I interrupt, but I would really like to oh, quote no, no, a paragraph. Mm-hmm. I, I would really like to quote a paragraph from Thomas Paine. From common sense, okay, and this is in the section where he said, where, where which is titled "Of Monarchy and Hereditary Succession." Mm-hmm. He's basically denying the divine right of kings, right? Right, right. And, and he says, in 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 response to um 
to, to his denial of the divine right of kings, he, he says, and I quote, but where, says some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above. He reigns above. Okay. Does not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, yet, I'm sorry, let a day solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter, let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America, the law is king. What law is he talking about? The divine law, the word of God. True. In America, the law is king. For as in absolute governments, the king is law, so in free countries, the law ought to be king. And he's talking about the divine law, the word of God. He's not changing the context to some other law. Mm-hmm. And there ought to be no other, but lest any ill use should afterwards arise. Let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is, the, the commonwealth, the, the body of Christ. Right. And that's Thomas, where it is, to, yeah, that's where it is today. That, that's all. That, that's, that, yeah. that's, a lot of people try to convince us that Thomas Paine was a deist, and, and mm-hmm. they're wrong. He was a Christian. Well, they tried to do that with Ben Franklin too, and I mean, he, you know, his, his seal was uh, our Saxon Israelites crossing the crossing the sea with with um, God Almighty above uh, providing the the passageway for them. So that's that's the that was the deity of uh, Benjamin Franklin right from the scriptures. Well, well, well that quote, <laughs> I um, I pulled that quote out of Thomas Paine this afternoon. Well, that's and, amazing. And mm-hmm. Thought I would use it at some point tonight, but but mm-hmm. it. it fits perfectly with what you said is what Thomas Paine said. What you just said is what Thomas Paine said. Well, it has to be everything's, everything's in accordance to the scriptures and, and it's God's hand is, that, that, is, that is guiding us. Well, absolutely. And, this, and at this point in time, he's guided us into the commonwealth. Now, you know, let's define that a little bit. What, like I said, you know, if we have an understanding, then probably people will say, well, you know, gosh, you know, maybe we've been aimed in the wrong direction. Uh, getting into American constitutional law, it says that our union is, in a, is a union of Commonwealth states. Now, you know, let's quote from uh, 1856, Bouvier's Law Dictionary. You know, this is a, a law dictionary that says adapted to the Constitution and laws of the United States by John Bouvier. Here's the definition of Commonwealth. It says, quote, Commonwealth government. A Commonwealth is properly a free state or republic, having a popular or representative government. The states composing the United States are properly so many commonwealths. End quote. So you know, and basically, you know, let's get a clear understanding of definitions. A, a true commonwealth is not communal in any way. So you know, let's let's not get our words mixed up. Under a commonwealth, what do we have? Well, it, it's God's people have all their God-given rights in common, and everybody has the right to own private property, especially land. Now, this is this is really key as far as what our inheritance is talking about, what Mark mentioned earlier. Everybody's got the right to own private property. Right? Now, the inheritance goes along with the land and the soil. But within the boundaries of a commonwealth nation, any land that's not privately owned 
happens to be owned as a whole by the people. So that's what it means to have a commonwealth. You know, the, the federation of the people guard and protect that land that individuals don't own. So, you know, when an individual or, or let's say, say, you know, a young family sets off into a territory to settle and work some of that land, they could get a land patent title. Now, now not a deed with a corporate property tax attached. That's, that's unlawful. That came later down the pike, you know. But a land patent uh, was from the assembly of the people, and then that young family or who settled that, that uncharted land, you know, then became owners of that land free and clear. So that's what a commonwealth is. Any land in a national area that's not privately owned is cared for and guarded by the people at large, and you know, eventually until until someone would become a, a privately owned citizen of or you know owning that land within the commonwealth. Now, the founding fathers, who we hear a lot of criticism from, uh, in what they did from 1776 to about 1800 was that they freed every square inch of land for our Christian people. And, and, you know, they provided them to possess it freely and without any encumbrance whatsoever. So, you know, the story of our history coming across the Atlantic, the, the, the land here was formerly under the, free, uh, the feudal system, or fealty, another word for it, the feudal system of law belonging to English lords and to the crown, you know, which had been subverted by the Bank of England. That's a whole other story. Now, the war for independence, and I'll wrap this up you know, shortly for the intro here. The war for independence and the uh, subsequent Christian Commonwealth constitutional states freed that land from feudalism, and it gave it to the people free and clear. Now, let's get into some solid background of law concerning this, and I'd, I'd like to quote just one more law source here. This is from a, a Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision about land rights that were, that were discussed back then. Uh, in the case of Wallace versus Harmstead, that's 44 PA 492. That's a, that's a uh, Supreme Court uh, case in uh, Pennsylvania. In 1863, they had a discussion about exactly what, what land rights were in inheritance. And Justice Woodward gave the decision of that court, and I'll condense it here. But here's the words, uh, because this goes along with what you, know, you were saying, Bill. Uh, Justice Woodward in that Pennsylvania Supreme Court said this, quote, our question, then, narrows itself down to this. Is fealty, or that is a feudal system, is fealty a part of our land tenures? What Pennsylvanian ever obtained his lands by openly and humbly kneeling before his lord, being ungrit, uncovered, and holding up his hands together between those of the lord who sat before him, and professing that he did, be, did become his man from that day forth for life and limb and earthly honor, and then receiving a kiss from his lord. Now, this was the oath of fealty. I'm still quoting the case here. But then came the revolution, 1776, which threw off the dominion of the mother country and established the independent sovereignty of the state of the people. An act on the 9th of April, 1781, provided for opening the land office and granting lands to purchasers, and says the 11th section, all and every land shall be free and clear of all reservations and restrictions, and that clear and exonerated from any charge or encumbrance whatever. The province was a fife held immediately from the crown, and the revolution would have operated very inefficiently towards complete emancipation if the feudal relation had been suffered to remain. It was therefore necessary to extinguish all foreign interest in the soil, 
We are then to regard the revolution and these acts of assembly as emancipating every acre of the soil of Pennsylvania from the grand characteristic of the feudal system, even as to the lands held under the Commonwealth, and that by a title purely allodial, end quote. Now, you know, allodial means it's free and it's not holding by any lord or superior, uh, uh, you know, under no vassalage whatsoever. Now, this was true of all the original states that assembled as, as their friendly league, where the original federal government uh, was also reflective of those commonwealths of the Christians who ran the governments of those states. So, the Constitution is a New Testament commonwealth vehicle. And what does it do? It's a commonwealth vehicle whereby we can have liberty in Christ to be secure on our own land to worship God and live by his laws. Okay? That's where we have, that's what we have in our private property. That's what it's all about. It's all about God's timing and where he wants us to be. And God's holy word, the, the scriptures, tell us that his laws right now are to be enforced by the commonwealth of his assembled people. So that's why it's important to know, you know what administration. The laws are the same, but, but those that are calling for, for a denial and, and a refutation of the Constitution, they're out of timing, they're out of step with God's will. Now, you know, of course, l let me just finish up the intro here with this, you know, this thought. Uh, we have associations of, of member states calling themselves commonwealths or, or republics, such as uh, the People's Republic of China or the British Commonwealth, w when in fact they are not. You, know, you, you just can't say it. You have to do it. And our founding fathers actually did it. It, it was exclusively Christian, just as the Apostle Paul described in Ephesians chapter 2. So, you know, I, I think that's enough uh, to catch us up tonight where we are. So, um, you know, you can continue on with, with any thoughts that uh, you might have on that or you know, any other subject that uh, we're going to proceed with. Well, I'd like to add that uh, there's still some states that refer to themselves as uh, commonwealths. And my own state, Kentucky, uh, you'll see that on their official letterheads. But um, what we want to emphasize tonight is that our founding fathers and uh, the Constitution and uh, um, this, the system of biblical law, all of that is under attack and has been for some time. And um, there are even some elements within Christian identity that are jumping on the bandwagon. And uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, simply uh, unwittingly slandering our uh, founding fathers, but uh, in the process of this, uh, they are elevating the Antichrist Jew. Right. And uh, I mentioned in our previous show uh, a very telling quote from Karl Marx himself where he said, if you take away the heritage of a people, they are easily persuaded. And that's what we can witness today. Um, well, Bill, it is you an attack upon our heritage. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Bill, you mentioned uh, earlier Hames Salomon and that um, he wasn't that big of a deal back then. And, and you're right, he wasn't. Um, but he has taken on... Um, um, an elevated significance because of these um, uh, unwitting uh, elements and, and those that aren't so unwitting uh, that are overtly chiseling away uh, at our heritage. And that's why I wanted to uh, touch on um, uh, this uh, Jewish character uh, in tonight's program. 
Uh, and I know you've written an article on that. If uh, someone wants to search your um, archives, you have a nifty little article on them. Uh, I haven't. I, I, what I have is a John Tiffany article uh, on Haim Solomon. I've written some comments on him, but but I have a John Tiffany article on Haim Solomon that ran in the Barnes Review. I have it on Christagenia.org for the purpose. Uh, well, well, it's a good article. It it, it puts Haim Solomon into a real historical perspective. Mm-hmm. My own opinion of Haim Solomon and and his you know the the um, trumpeting of his um, role and, and the exaggeration of his role in the revolution, which, which is occurring today, it is that the Jews, I believe, are, are attempting to take advantage of our perception of Jews as the endlessly wealthy and ever-crafty moneylenders that they are in order to convince us, in order to convince us that somehow we also owe them our nation. Same way that we owe them our Bible. Well, well, right, exactly. That that we wouldn't have the nation if it weren't for the Jews, and and that's that the entire Haim Solomon thing is. Well, well, it it's basically a, a pretty huge exaggeration. Uh, I'd like to read, if if you don't mind. I, I mean, I'll read a couple of just two paragraphs from the John Tiffany article on Haim Solomon, and and I'll post it. I'll post a link to it when I post this podcast on the podcast page. It's John Tiffany, if you don't mind, says that Solomon was born in Lisa, Poland in 1740, and it apparently traveled considerably. After leaving Poland at some ascertained date, he apparently arrived in America in 1772. Solomon was married in January 1777, in New York to Rachel Franks, daughter of Moses B. Franks of New York, who belonged to a distinguished American, well, well, Jewish-American family, which included Jacob Franks of New York, who had been commissary to the British government during the French and Indian War, well, of course, and had handled hundreds of thousands of dollars or pounds worth of property. Solomon arrived in Philadelphia about August 25th, 1778, practically penniless, mm-hmm. after getting away from British soldiers in New York who had imprisoned him on suspicion of arson. The Brit- well, Jewish lightning, right? The, the British seized his entire <laughs> fortune, which he stated to have been between 5,000 and 6,000 pounds sterling. There is no evidence, no known evidence of that money ever having been refunded to him or his family. Some sources say that he escaped, but according to the book War, War, War by Cincinnatus, he, he was actually released at the request of the British government. It seems they had entered into an agreement with him to use his language skills to communicate with their German Hessian troops. Instead, Solomon made his way to Philadelphia. There was a myth that Solomon loaned large sums of money to the new American government. However, a letter book, this is an authentic book of Solomon's letters, containing copies of letters written by or on behalf of Solomon, between July 1781 and July 1783, which had belonged to Solomon himself, shows that as late as 1782, he was able, for the first time, to spare money to aid his indigent parents in Poland by sending them funds. And he protested on July 10, 1783, that his means did not permit him to take care of a nephew who his Polish relatives were sending to America to him without his authorization. He wrote, 
Your ideas of my riches are too extreme. Rich I am not, but the little I have, I think, it my duty to share with my poor father and mother. These letters alone dispose of the theory that Solomon had any considerable fortune to lend the government, even if he had wished to do so. Tiffany's research, research shows that Solomon was basically simply an employee of, of the real financier of the American Revolution, who was Robert Morris. And, and Morris had Solomon in his employ, and, and he was in his employ only a short time before the Battle of Yorktown on October 19, 1781, which ended the war. Solomon only worked for, for Morris for a couple of months leading up to that and was able to float. Solomon did have financial acumen, there's no doubt. He, he, he was a Jewish accountant and, and evidently a pretty decent one. But, but his real favor to, to the revolution was to float about $200,000 in bonds, which, which really didn't have any bearing on the outcome of the war at all. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, I mean, the man was in the employ of, of Robert Morris, and, and even though he, he was supposedly a, um, a decent accountant and, and a good bond salesman, that, that, that was his limitation. That, that was his limitation as far as having a role in the revolution. He didn't win us the war. He, he didn't, we, we would have easily won the war anyway without him. He, he um, had a very minor contribution. To, to the welfare of, of the government in the months following the war. And he didn't stay in Morris's um, employ for long. He, he was only in Morris's employ for a few months, 11 months or something like that. I forget the exact number. Yeah, but it well, wasn't. That's, yeah, you're, well, that's correct. You're right on target. I mean, it just takes a little bit of digging and reading in, into the historical facts about it instead of taking someone's you know, statement uh, of, of this century. I mean, if you flip, flip the pages back, I mean, you, you know, you discover exactly what what you said, Bill, is to be true. It's right on target. It's right on right on the money, as <laughs> as uh, Ham may say. So, um, you know, it's another another exaggeration of the disinformation to you know discredit the the bravery of our of our Christian founding fathers. Well, well, when I visited Philadelphia um, two years ago. I found that the Jews of Philadelphia are the ones that re- that are really pushing Haim Solomon mm-hmm. and and really trying to magnify his role in the in in the, the um in, in the American victory in the revolution and they're doing that so that they could claim a, a larger part of, of well a, a, a much larger part than they certainly deserve mm-hmm. of the, the founding of this nation. And that there is a terrible, it's a horrendously terrible, very disproportionate Jewish presence in the the um, the, the the Constitution Center and, and the other monuments and, and libraries and and museums surrounding Philadelphia and the birth of this nation. Well, you and, know, and they're, no, mm-hmm. they're they're using things like Hain Solomon in in order to justify their magnification of their role. Well, you know, and that that's exactly right because because it's it's the it's the latter Jews and the and the and the uh, later generation of Jews that have that have picked up on on this trying to to make this god national god out of, out of Solomon because he didn't say it. Now, you know, I, I think some of them uh, may see their empire crumbling, and, and and a few of them are like you know the first the first rats that leave the sinking ship because uh, there was <laughs> one 
uh, a Jewish historian who who, who was a uh, uh, gives a counter to that. His name was Max Kohler. I don't know if you've heard of him. And um, I have a quote from him because he, he uh, Max Kohler wrote a, a, a pamphlet called Ham Solomon, the Patriot Broker of the Revolution. Let me, let me just read one, you know, one or two sentences out of this uh, because he he corroborates what you're saying. Now this is a, this is actually a Jewish source itself. Um, it says this that uh, let me I won't read it all, but it says quote it would have been impossible for him, you know, Solomon. To have made such fabulous sums in four years, had he done so, he would have been the richest man in America, and there is no real evidence to prove that he ever possessed substantial wealth. Solomon himself, moreover, never made the claim that the government owed him huge monies. It was his son who did so, many decades after the father's death. So, you know, there's a source from a, from a, from a, a Jewish historian on his own, who I, you know, I think he sees things crumbling, and maybe he wants to not get caught under the <laughs> under the massive collapse. So every once in a while, a tidbit will come out if you you know you, you save your papers and uh, so you can well, go back to these uh, quotes. It's important that, to understand um, uh, when Bill read the the letters from his own hand, which were written between 1781 and 1783. Mm-hmm. He said, I am not rich. Uh, right. <laughs> we seem to have a little bit of cognitive dissonance here uh, with with some people trying to make him the uh, financier of the revolution and uh, the savior of our country. It's, uh, it's absurd. Uh, Washington said that Robert Morris, who was a very wealthy man, uh, was the, uh, the money man at that time. And that, as Bill said, uh, Haim Solomon was just an employee, uh, more akin to what we call a subcontractor. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, well, right. And, and Tiffany goes on, and, and he actually says the same thing that Ken just quoted. Tiffany also says that same thing in, in, in his article, that okay. there was no that, that, that um, he, he laid out basically the same thing that your Jewish historian has. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. But but Tiffany also implies in this article that that Ham Solomon profited illicitly from his dealings on behalf of the United States government. Yeah, I, I understand that as well. Do you have do you have a little bit of something on that or? Well, well, it, it's um. There was the employee. He dealt, he dealt, yeah, he dealt in the money that that, that he had, he had, he had, had loaned to other nations, and I mean he didn't. It was none of it was his. I mean, his transactions were 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 monies owned by the by the country itself, and I think he was he was reaping some some interest. I think two point five percent on what he was what he's dealing with, you know, underhandedly. I don't I don't have the information right in front of me, but I mean, you know, the historical well, the historical uh, accounts around this ma- manner, you know, they're being bent into something that they are not. Odd is it odd is it that I'm quoting from the Tiffany article, odd as it might seem it was a group of Jewish citizens who investigated and exploded the Haim Solomon myth. A Jewish congressman named Emmanuel Seller of New York called upon some patriotic Jews named Max Kohler and a Mr. Oppenheim. Presented here in condensed form is what they have learned. The Kohler report is exceedingly difficult to find, even in the best stocked libraries, although there is a copy in the Library of Congress. Despite the report, 
There was a persistent and noisy effort to persuade the American people that Haim Solomon was, quote-unquote, the financier of the American Revolution, and that the services of this man to the patriot cause were unique. As a result of the propaganda on his behalf, the average American, if he has heard of Solomon, thinks he was the savior of the revolution. And I'll skip ahead and quote, some of Oppenheim's, well, Tiffany's presentation of Oppenheim's findings. Oppenheim discovered from the bank records, of which he had made photographic copies, that Solomon's way of dealing with the government was to secure U.S. government paper to negotiate by sale thereof. He would receipt for the same, as he disposed of the same quite uniformly at an enormous discount. He would draw his own checks in payment. Solomon's son, or the later's agents, persuaded several committees of Congress that these checks, proceeds of the sale of government paper, somehow represented loans by Solomon to the government from his own funds, and they weren't. He was, that never happened. He was double-dealing. He was double-dealing. That's the word for it. We can call it a scam. <laughs> well, he was a Jew. If, if you see a Jew, you're looking at a, probably a few scams. Right? Like father, like son. <laughs> so, so that's that's all. That, that's basically. I'll, I'll quote a. I'll, I'll post a link to the entire Tiffany article when I post this podcast on mm-hmm. on Christiania. And it's a fairly good article. Yeah. Well, he was basically a middleman. And uh, what we biblically would call a money changer, who uh, uh, Jesus got a little forceful with. And um, uh, there's also a few other things that we should point out that uh, during the American Revolution, it's it's been asserted that uh, Solomon went to France and and raised an additional 3.5 million. Uh, pounds from the Sassoon and the Rothschild banking families. But here's the deal. Uh, David Sassoon had not yet been born. (laughs) And um, uh, likewise, the Rothschild family had not set up a bank in France yet. So uh, here again, we have, like the Paul Bashers, a little bit of intellectual dishonesty. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, you know, anyone wanting to, to argue for uh, Illuminati conspiracy from, from Europe is simply uh, ignoring the historical record and, and dates and fabricating a storyline. Yeah, well, indeed, that's what they're doing. And, and, um, and there's also the assertion that uh, Salomon uh, bribed Madison in order to... Uh, uh, construct the Article 6, which we'll get to in a moment, but there is absolutely no evidence that he ever loaned Madison money for uh, his political campaigns. And um, it's said that he was a Rothschild agent and an impassioned patriot, uh, neither of which is true. And, and those are contradictory terms anyway. They are. He, he was simply well, I'm just going yeah, to ask you about that. He was simply a typical Jewish opportunist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the idea that the Constitution was one of the most 
important events in the history of Jewry, because they hadn't been a free people since the Roman Empire, is a mistaken idea for two reasons. One is the Christian founders had no provision for non-Christians in the Constitution. It was exclusively a Christian document. And that heritage is what is being taken away from us today. Secondly, the Jews have always been a, a parasite on a host nation. And to grant the idea that Jews have the same kind of understanding about freedom and liberty uh, as Christians do, that would be anti-Talmudic, because Jewry is predicated on a tyranny against non-Jews, and they've always worked towards that goal, regardless of their social status. Mm-hmm. You know, their their thoughts and ways <laughs> are not like ours or our God. Right. And uh, the scripture describes them succinctly uh, when it says the kingdom of God suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. So the exactly. Jews could care less about the virtues of liberty and freedom. Their protocol is war and economic slavery. So it's it's in their best interest to destroy the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they, that's what they've been trying to do. Well, it's interesting. Now, now that if, it was, if it was such a document that was so great and, and, and beneficial for the Jews, why have they been working for, for you know, the history of our nation to destroy it? Would mm-hmm. Would you think they would want to uphold the original Constitution? That assault goes way back before the eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. That, that's well, why I think, and I don't know or or even care at this point if anybody agrees with me, but. Well, when I did my um, my exposition on the Revelation, I actually believe that the Revelation in chapter 12 is a triple prophecy. It, it follows the opening of the little book and the establishment of, of um, the, the people of God in, in, in the Word of God, which is the Reformation. And um, Revelation chapter 12 is both a prophecy describing something that happened in a distant past – the fallen angels and the serpent, the whole thing. Describing the birth of Christ when Herod attempted to, to destroy the Christ child, and also describing the foundation of this nation when the Jews have also tried to destroy that from the beginning, mm-hmm. as soon as it was born. Well, they so, seem so to be the abortion experts, don't they? Right. I mean, this seems to be a, a, a trait of theirs. And they did, the attack, you know, the, when they, the attack did come against this nation, you know, easily within 10 years uh, of the passage of, of the Constitution. We're not saying it wasn't changed or, or debauched. It certainly was. But, I mean, the attack was immediately on as soon as the young nation was born. And so, you know, so this, this attack against the, anything that's in the infant nature of the Christian, whether it be the personal body or the, or the infant form of government, they are fast and quick to try to play the abortion doctor and 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 um, and destroy it. When they Absolutely. said when they crucified Christ and they said, "Let His blood be upon us and our children," they didn't mean just at that time. That was for all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are much more subtle ways today than crucifixion, but. Um, uh, this thing about destroying the Constitution all plays into uh, the Marxist dialectic. 
they play all sides of, of the fence uh, when they try to get what they want. And it was interesting. Just last week, I ran into a, an article um, about a, a Jewish professor from uh, Georgetown University, a constitutional law professor, um, Louis Michael Seidman. And uh, he's put forward the idea that we need to, to give up on our Constitution. So what does that mean? Well, I guess he, he wants us to go without any kind of basic framework for government. And uh, uh, quoting this article, he believes a group of white men with property, meaning the framers of the Constitution, who have been dead for two centuries, know nothing about our current situation. <laughs> uh, he believes that our freedom should just be adhered to out of respect rather than obligation. <laughs> Respected rather than clearly delineated and enforced. Right. So, you know, our people who set up our form of government did so with this knowledge that individuals could seize and abuse power, meaning kings and queens or what have you. So they set up this basic framework to prevent that from happening, giving us all these freedoms to express our thoughts freely. And, uh, you know, Ken, you and I were talking on the phone last week about uh, the amendment process that was built into the Constitution so that if uh, somebody wants to right a wrong, uh, anything they deem to be in error, uh, that they have that uh, process to pursue. But a lot of them would rather just uh, uh, moan and groan about things rather than actually being proactive. And, um, you know, our founding fathers did have an apprehension of our current situation and, and understanding history and the Bible and uh, the basic foundations of law in order to avoid the trappings of tyranny. And um, I say shame on those people who have, who have taken the, the Jewish bait uh, to spit on the graves who, of men who fought and died to establish this once great Christian nation. Um, right. The Constitution, we can agree, has been usurped just as the Bible uh, has been usurped. But, but the blame uh, cannot be placed at the time of its drafting, ratification, and passage. And uh, that's a mistake so many of the, uh, the uh, critics make today, is that it was during that time, uh, whereas it, it was later on where it started going downhill and, and um, being chipped away at. Well, well, it's clear the Fourteenth Amendment is a clear violation of the, pre, the the concept of the Constitution, which was for the founders and their posterity, and the Fourteenth Amendment totally contradicts that, because well, it lets a lot of people in. It, it forces the states to admit a whole lot of people as citizens who are not part of the founders' posterity. It violates what 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 Ken was trying to explain before was basically a family covenant. Well, we could, you know, you know, what the 13th and 14th Amendment does is turn white people into black people. Well, it does. And we could probably have a whole, whole other show dealing with that subject. But, you know, basically what happened is uh, it, it created a new class of citizen that the original Constitution never never had. That is a, a United States citizen. I mean, you, you, before the 
14th Amendment and before the war between the states, you had to be a citizen of one of the sovereign states to be a, a, a citizen of the United States of America. Well, you know, the Negro slave wasn't any citizen of the state, so they had to create a new a new class of citizen, uh, unlo- both unlawful and illegal as it is. But what have they done? They were under jurisdiction of Washington, D.C., which turned corporate. So basically what has happened is where the states were sovereign, they have just uh, uh, over overlapped, let's say, a map of the United States with the 14th Amendment, and they've applied that unlawful delegation of the new citizen to you and I and everybody in the states. You know, they, they've made us unlawful U.S. citizens under the jurisdiction of Washington, D.C., and we are not. So there, there's a great difference between the the Constitution that we have now, which is the 14th Amendment Constitution, the, uh, the post-Civil War Constitution, and the, the pre-Civil War Constitution, which was the true republic. So, you know, you, you hear people, you, you hear um, conservative Republicans, even Ron Paul and people like Alex Jones saying they want to enforce the Constitution. We have to get back to the Constitution. Well, no, what they, what they want to be enforced is, the, is a 14th Amendment Constitution for everybody. You know, read what they're saying. That's not the Constitution we're talking about in 1787. It's a, it's a completely – both the Constitutions are going in 180 degrees opposite of each other. So, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to say when, when, when the constitutional commonwealth system is the divine system for us, it's not this Constitution that we see today. It's the, it's the former Constitution before the war between the states, and it would probably take two hours just to talk on that subject. Right. Uh, we actually have two governments running side by side, one Christian and one secular. Mm-hmm. Well, the old one's hanging by a hair. I mean, it's not, it's not completely done, and we're going to win this, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's barely breathing. But, um, you know, uh, it's our chastisement. I mean, we can't blame anybody you know, but ourselves, our people. We haven't, haven't got down on our knees, not enough of us yet, anyhow, and, and repented of our sins. That's the whole that's the whole problem uh in a nutshell it's you know it's it's uh what we have done and uh you know actually you know what what are the Jews doing here but but to be of our chastening rods and, and you know Christ said that uh let the wheat and the tares grow together until the time of the end so um you know if we would repent and turn turn back to obedience of our of our of our heavenly father i mean uh what they would do wouldn't matter one bit. So, uh, you know, the, the original Constitution is hanging on, sort of, but uh, we have to get back to an understanding of what it's about. What, what about, Mark, you mentioned um, you were going to go into uh, Article 6 and the Religious Test Clause, uh, if you want to proceed with that. Right. Um, the, the original unamended Constitution contains one explicit reference to religion, and that's Article 6, ban on religious tests, quote, for any office or public trust under the United States. Uh, notice it doesn't say under the several states. And uh, I don't think people follow through in their thinking uh, on this if it said uh, the federal government shall have religious tests for any federal office. Uh, it would revert back to what they left in Europe, Right. You know, uh, well, they take a signed uh, a sound bite out of just a, a little part of Article Six and read it, and and uh, again presenting it as something it never did. I mean, um, if you'd like to go into that a little more, you know. Well, the ban extended only to federal office holders. The states were free at 
the time of the founding to impose religious tests as they saw fit, and all of them did. The, um, the state tests limited public offices to Christians, or in some states only to Protestants. And so the, uh, the national government, on the other hand, could not impose any religious tests whatsoever. Uh, national offices were open to, to all white Christian men who went through uh, the safety valve of, of state scrutiny. And that was the process. Uh, if it failed, as you said, Ken, it was the fault of the people, not the process. The local people, the states and the local people were responsible for, for, for making sure the states uh, retained their Christian government. I mean, uh, well, it's you know, well the, documented in, in the writings of the time that uh, government began with self-government. Mm-hmm. And from there, families, and then communities, and then counties, and then states, and then the the national organ. Well, you know, the national organ, yeah, it, it existed to serve the states. Now, unless the people would delegate some specific power to the federal government, that, that those powers belong to the state. Now, in this case, you know, the, the servant, or in other words, the, the federal government, was not given any power to decide or, or change any matters concerning religion, period. I'd like to interject a few things, and, and I think that the huge confusion over this entire issue stems from the confusion between Christianity and what the founders termed religion. Christianity was not religion. Christianity was expected. I can prove that in one line, and I could, prove it. I, I could go through a whole lot of documents and come up and, and document this, all right? But I'm going to quote the last three lines of Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And two paragraphs before this, he had called Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, if he wasn't a Christian, he could have just referred to Jesus Christ in the line where he said our Savior. But by terming him our Savior, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Thomas Paine was a Christian. The last three lines of common sense. And here, without anger or resentment, I bid you farewell, sincerely wishing that as men and Christians, ye may always fully and uninterruptedly enjoy every civil and religious right and be, in your turn, the means of securing it to others. But that the example which you have unwisely set of mingling religion with politics may be disavowed and reprobated by every inhabitant of America. And the only way to correctly reconcile what Thomas Paine said there is to understand that Christianity was expected. This is 1776. Mm-hmm. The Jews did not gained emancipation in Europe. Every citizen in every European nation was a Christian. The Jews did not have citizenship. They weren't emancipated until after Napoleon. Napoleon emancipated the Jews after the French Revolution. So the Jews in America, nobody expected them to be citizens either. People did not expect Jews to be office holders. They couldn't hold office in Europe. And that's where people came from. That, that's the, the frame of mind here. And, and yes, the religious test 
was to prevent that the, the ban of a religious test was to prevent the, the dominance of any single denomination. Because That's religion to the founders, religion to the founders meant how you practice your Christianity. Right. You were expected to be a Christian. But religion was how you practice your Christianity. And if you're a Catholic, you're not going to force your Pope on me. And if you're an Anglican, you're not going to force your King on me because I'm a Puritan or maybe a Lutheran or some other denomination. That's what religion meant to the founders. Religion wasn't Christianity. Christianity was, was expected. They were expected to be Christians. They were all Christians. Well, you know, this whole problem in the Constitution with, the, with this religious ban test, uh, oath test in Article 6, you know, it's right in the Constitution. If, if those who misrepresent the Article 6 ban would simply read the provision in the federal Constitution itself at, at Article 1, Section 2, they would immediately see that it, it's the state's power to qualify is where we find the Christian uh, test. Now, let's read that. I, I, I pulled that up here while, while you were, were, were given that your good great dissertation on that bill uh the federal constitution article one section two reads this the house of representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature so the constitution did provide for it i mean they they, they weren't against the test the oath they said it is it is reverted to the states so you know, I mean, I mean that's what we have. What what, what would happen? Here's where they were. You know, the the thing is, the the um, the 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 legislature, the federal legislature, representatives from the states who agreed and passed that that Article Six in their very own home states, they they made sure that there were Christian oaths that were required for their state. So you have them, the same people that required religious tests for Christianity in the states. They were the ones that, that um, demanded, decided, and ratified at the federal level, we're not going to have it. Now, let me tell you why. What would happen if the majority of Congress at some point in time just happened to become, let's say, Baptist, okay, or, or another Christian sect? Well, you know, lo and behold, they could monopolize and, and rewrite the federal religious test to force all of the state's Christians to conform to their own denomination, and, and they would compel them to renounce their own congregation's beliefs. No, 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 no. This was not going to work, and the Christian founding fathers were wise enough to foresee the untold bitter problems that a federal religious test would cause to the nation. Now, the nation was comprised of, of general Christianity, and that's what was existing at the common law of, of, of the friendly League of States, and that was solidly established. So, um, you know, Article 1, Section 2, those who have a constitution uh, in their home libraries, if they read Article 1, Section 2, you'll see that the the states the, had the, had the electors' uh, responsibility for who would come into the federal office, and uh, it was reserved to the states. And that takes care of that Article 6 question. Well, well, right. it, means, it means that the Christian local government status at that time were the qualifications that were the real factor in determining who would go on and sit in the federal House of Representatives. So it's the local people of the counties in the states had the duty to preserve Christianity, as Mark says. And if they were if they were apathetic and failing to do so, well, then you know all is lost anyhow. So you know they pay the consequences. That, that, yeah. the, the, fault, the fault for non Christians invading our, our land can't be laid at the feet of the federal constitution. It's a it's a personal problem caused by sleeping Christians. Absolutely, 
That, that's you know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians and, and critics of the Founding Fathers don't understand the degree of control the Anglicans had in Virginia, the biggest mm-hmm. colony, and, and the, how badly the Puritans of Massachusetts feared that and wanted to keep it in check and wanted to keep it in Virginia because they did not want to be Anglicans. Mm-hmm. And that's only one example, but, but that's the reason for that, that, that Sixth Amendment. Well, and that gets into the First Amendment, too. You know, we're, we hear this, that the First Amendment provided for secularism and allowed for everybody to come in, and, and that's not true either. I mean, it was, it was um, you know, Joseph Story, the Supreme Court Justice, he, he published works along those lines, and, and um, I believe he wrote his books from, you know, Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, and he, he mentions in there that uh, the purpose of the First Amendment was to exclude all rivalry among Christian sects and, and you know, had nothing to do with the other religions. You know, well, well, the, Virginia. First the, the First Amendment could not have nullified the preamble. No, and the preamble, the, you, know, you know, Bill, it all gets, here's the thing, you know, here's the bottom line, okay? The, the preamble sets the, the, whole, the whole basis for the Constitution. No matter which way you cut it, no one is getting around the fact that it was for those white Christians and their posterity, the racial line of white Christianity. If that's not you, if you're the wrong posterity, I'm sorry. It's, it's just not applicable. That would, that would be like saying if, if I were to buy your car off of you, Bill, and you, know, you wrap me a bill of sale, and, and you know, it's, my, it's mine, and then someone else says, hey, I want that car. You know, I, mean, I want to hop in and take that thing off and drive off with it. Well, I'm sorry, they can't do it because the contract is between Bill Fink and Ken Lamp. So the same thing. I don't, I don't care what follows after the preamble. Everything is a moot point. It's the it, same problem with the Bible, that it's mm-hmm. for Jake and his posterity. Same thing. Article now, six, those, those, uh, those that criticize Thomas Jefferson you know, and, and the First Amendment, you know, our, our common law and our constitutional law, it, it does provide for religious illegality. I mean, if, if I could read, read something here from Thomas Jefferson quickly, because they say, well, he had, he had freedom of religion in Virginia. Well, no, that's not, that's not true. Now, here's, here's what Thomas Jefferson wrote on his notes on religion in 1776. Now, because this is a little-known little law uh, uh, that's in this controversy. Thomas Jefferson wrote this. If anything pass in a religious meeting seditiously and contrary to the public peace, let it be punished in the same manner and no otherwise than if it had appeared or happened in a fair or a market. Okay? Now, what was Thomas Jefferson's opinion, being a student of the law and writing about religious freedom, which, he, which was meant only for Christian denominations? How did, he, how did he feel about the purpose of civil government interfering in, in religious beliefs? Here's another quote from Thomas Jefferson for a statute for religious freedom in 1779. Thomas Jefferson says this, quote, It is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere in the propagation of religious teachings when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order, end of quote. Now, so what we have here is, is Thomas Jefferson says that you can't break American laws in the name of some religion. You know, that's to say, if a, if a religion would be discovered that would conspire to rob the national money system or, or promote social indecency or manipulate the nation into unlawful wars, Thomas Jefferson tells us that it's our rightful civil government and it's the duty it was meant to interfere with that religion and remove it. 
So, you know, all religions do not have freedom in the land. I mean, if they, they were to be investigated and found out that they were seditious, Thomas Jefferson says it's, it's the duty of the civil government to put a stop to it. Right, but the, the founders, rep- recognizing the sovereignty of the states, fully expected mm-hmm. the states to maintain those things. Mm-hmm. That was the freedom of the states to maintain those things as they so desired, as you've already outlined. Mm-hmm. Even the, the, the Constitution allows the states to determine how the electors are chosen. It, it doesn't have to be by a popular vote. That's a Jewish deception. Well, it's a democracy. It's mob rule. I noticed somebody in the chat room uh, mentioning they should have mentioned God somewhere in the Constitution. And uh, if I could just address that, uh, when when they were uh, debating uh, this at the Constitutional Convention, uh, which was adopted by uh, the great majority uh, without much debate, uh, uh, this clause was hotly disputed in some states, uh, struggling over the ratification, and, and the objection was simply uh, that Jews and Turks and infidels and heathens and even Roman Catholics might hold national office under the proposed Constitution. Mm-hmm. But uh, as more soberly expressed by Pennsylvanian Benjamin Rush, uh, many pious people wish the name of the supreme being had been introduced somewhere in the new Constitution. But the religious test clause was thus a focal point for reservations about the Constitution's apparent secular language. Now, some defenders of the Constitution argued in response that a belief in God and a future state of reward and punishment could, notwithstanding the test ban, be required of public officers. And on this interpretation, Article 6 banned only sectarian states such as would exclude some Christians from office. And others asserted that the requirement that officers take an oath to support and defend the Constitution necessarily implied a religious commitment. And when they take an oath of office, uh, then and now their hand is usually on a Bible saying, so help me God. And that means no other small g God, right? Right. Uh, if you read just before No Religious Test, it talks about the oath, uh, which says the senators and representatives and members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. And then it gets into the No Religious Test. Well, I think it comes down to, you know, uh, you hear the argument, well, why didn't they mention God in the Constitution? It comes down to what I mentioned earlier. It's misunderstanding what the Constitution is. It didn't set up the government. The Constitution is is a, the the government was already Christian. This is a given. The Constitution is a sub-document in the Christian government already going for the purpose of, of devising the inheritance family trust to pass on down the blessings of liberty. It didn't set up the government. Okay, so people are misunderstanding what the Constitution does. It's a it's a trust document to to preserve the blessings of liberty that were already ongoing, and the the heirs are the posterity, and the trustees are supposed to be Congress, whose job is only to enforce the the trust laws of making sure that our blessings are are continued, of liberty. 
So I think there's a misunderstanding of, of people thinking that the Constitution created some new form of government, so why didn't it mention God? Let's look at it this way. It, it's like when you, get in your, when you get in your car, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you, you, know, you get in the automobile, right? I mean, it, it's a given that the wheels are already on. So as far as the Constitution, it, is, it was a given amongst them, so solidly implanted in their laws that, that the Christian nation was already in effect. You go to a supermarket. You go in there to buy people food. Nobody goes into, into a law dissertation at the checkout line explaining to the clerk that the reason you're buying people food is, is that you're a person, that you have to prove you're a person before you buy that food. You know, it's already a given that you're in there to buy people food. You pay for it and you leave. You know, you don't have to explain it. So it was a given under the Constitution that the government already was ongoing and that was Christian. So, you know... Yeah, I think what people... Uh... Uh, aren't understanding is that if it were on a if a, a religious test were on a, a national level, the chaos that would ensue would be like a, a Methodist was forced to become a Baptist well, or terrible. any other denominational monopoly on a federal level. The the First Amendment was put in place, said you know Congress should make their law respecting an establishment of religion, and that was that was clearly for the denominations and what that was is they did something we haven't been able to do today. They, they got together and they agreed to disagree. Okay? There was, you know, one denomination was not going to run the show. And the same thing with the oaths. Right? There, there was not going to be a, a possibility that one denomination would take over the federal government and, 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 you know, by hook or by crook, make the others submit to their particular oath. Now, you know, the founding fathers were criticized, but they all differed, and they, they have done what we haven't come near able to do today. They were able to disagree. They agreed to disagree. They put that forth in the First Amendment, and before that, they, they took up their arms and their muskets, and they defeated the world mystery Babylon power of their time, the British Empire. Have we done that? We, can't, we, haven't, we haven't come near to accomplishing what they did. Yet they did it, and they agreed to, to, to set their differences aside for the betterment of general Christianity, and they won their conflict. And that's what they were uh, fleeing from, was uh, uh, the Church of England demanding uh, loyalty by, by the people. And, and uh, the, the religious freedom that we hear about is, is why they came here, to get away from that. Right. Well, I'd like to uh, touch on a, um, uh, a book that was written by a Jew, and this ties into the uh, Marxist dialectics that I was talking about earlier. And the book is called A Godless Constitution, and uh, it's written by Cornell University professor Isaac Kramnik, a Jew. Right. And uh, he argued that... Um, the God-fearing framers of the U.S. Constitution created an utterly secular state, um, unshackled from the intolerant chains of religion, and that they uh, purportedly find evidence for this thesis in the constitutional text itself, which uh, they describe as radically godless and distinctly secular. Uh, but their argument while an appealing antidote to the historical assertions of the religious right today, 
is uh, superficial and misleading. Uh, there were, in fact, uh, anti-federalist critics of the Constitution who complained bitterly that the document's failure to invoke the deity to include explicit Christian references indicated at best indifference or at worst hostility towards Christianity. But this view, however, did not prevail in the battle to ratify the Constitution. This Jewish professor's inordinate reliance on the Constitution's most vociferous critics to describe and define that document results in misleading, if not erroneous, conclusions. And um, like the extreme anti-federalist of 1787, this Jewish professor misunderstands the fundamental nature of the federal regime and its founding charter. Um, the U.S. Constitution's lack of, of Christian designation, as some people see it, uh, had little to do with any radical secular agenda. Um, in fact, it, it had little to do with uh, all religions per se at all. Uh, in fact, um, Bill mentioned the word religion a little earlier, and the nomenclature of that day is a little bit different than what we understand the word religion today. And a lot of the, the uh, colonial writings, religion was on par or synonymous with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at that time, uh, the framers' personal beliefs in religion was a matter uh, best left to the individual citizens and their respective state governments. Um, and, um, and most of these states in this founding era retained some form of, of a religious establishment uh, whereby the Article 6 is, is coupled with the First Amendment. The uh, federal government shall have no establishment of religion. And they weren't talking about an inclusive uh, a type of uh, society in which it allowed Hinduism or Buddhism or any of the other isms, it was uh, in reference to to the various Christian denominations. That was the well, thing. Well, religion is the practice of one's Christianity in a Christian society. That's what it meant to the founding fathers. They couldn't first that they did not conceive of the idea that that somebody would let these brown squat monsters in from faraway exotic places and make them citizens. They didn't conceive of that. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't even stepped foot on our shores at that time. We hadn't nope. quite gotten to that point in time of multicultural diversity to even make it a consideration. It took 200 years for Teddy Kennedy to do that. And uh, they did it with the proverbial uh, boiling the frog in the saucepan. <laughs> right. And uh, uh-huh. I think in his book, the, the Godless Constitution, there's a, a clear lack of documentation. And uh, the book is replete with misstatements or mischaracterizations of fact and, and garbled quotations. And it, and uh, it really reminds me of of uh, the uh, last, what is it, 15 uh, programs now on the Paul Bashers. Right. Uh, the, the similarities are uncanny. They really are. Um, the, uh, the author, um, 
resorted to what's called law office history. Uh, in other words, uh, with an adversarial ethic, selectively recounting facts, uh, emphasizing data that support his own uh, presuppositions and and uh, minimizing significant facts that complicate or conflict with his biases. Um, the, the suggestion that the, the U.S. Constitution is godless because it only makes brief mention of the, the deity and, and Christian custom is is really superficial and misguided. And this, this Jewish professor, Kramnik, succumbs to the temptation to impose 20th century values on an 18th century text. And uh, this book is less than an honest appraisal of history than a partisan tract written for contemporary battles. And this is what some of the uh, Constitution uh, critics uh, rely upon or emulate. So here we have a clear, clear case of a Jew tampering with history and the Constitution in order to undermine it. And in the process, disillusioning Christians as to their heritage. And and here's the Marxist dialectic. We first mentioned the thesis of Haim Solomon uh, being a hero in the establishment of the Constitution to favor Jews. Mm-hmm. And then along comes the antithesis of this Isaac Kramnik to demonize the Constitution. And the synthesis is that news article that I uh, read just this week by yet another Jewish professor whose solution is to abolish the Constitution. Well, it sounds like they want to play all sides. Um, You know, cover all bases. Ken, you've done... The the actual founders never understood the United States Constitution as an anti-Christian document. No, they they didn't comprehend it, as you say. You know, people today, you know, you know, you can understand why people complain today because things aren't going that well. But I mean, I mean, um, the founding fathers never envisioned, Bill, like you were saying, things that happen today. They never, never imagined that these would be going on according to the words in their law at their time. The, 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 the. Terms are completely different, applicable as far as the way they view them and we view them today. Well, the actual practice of the government that the Constitution created what was replete with Christian decorum for 200 years uh-huh. or close to it. And the founders, uh, I mean, Congress had, had a um, prayer sessions and 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 it, it's that they, they had chaplains and and. It, it was the, the the actual conductance of the government was a, a, a Christian conduct. It, yeah, and the, it was, the Constitution never changed that. No, and, and the, the men that conducted the government in, in its early years in a fully Christian manner, mm-hmm. with with all of the Christian trimmings, they were the authors of the Constitution and the signers of the Constitution. Right. She didn't imagine that it barred Christianity from the function of government. Mm-hmm. So, like so it's the power bashers, uh, Bill, you've been taking it point by point, and uh, that's really the only way to... Um, to uh, point by point to the point of absurdity, but that's yes. okay. Uh, 
Ken has has uh, done some research on on yet another uh, one of their talking points, which is uh, the Treaty of Tripoli. Uh, Ken, would you like to tell us about that? Well, you know, okay, let's 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 get to the bottom of the real facts concerning the uh, Treaty of Tripoli that was ratified by Congress in 1797, and, and that was during President John Adams' administration. So, uh, here's a classic example of of twisting the facts and and um, they do it. You know, scripturally, we we know some uh, denominations uh, uh, try to pull off what we call one verse Christianity. Well, they've done the same thing here with this Treaty of Tripoli, and it, you know they they're not laying all the cards on the table. Now, the Treaty of Tripoli is is the humanist. It, it's their best isolated shot of of some document that uh, supposedly shows that the American government was not built upon Christianity. And, you know, as a matter of fact, it's. It's the only thing they've got going as far as some claimed written document goes. You know, as you just mentioned, never mind the previous uh, several hundred years of recorded Christian law resources upon which America was built. They they always want to put their uh, all their eggs in the basket and, and depend on the Treaty of Tripoli. So, you know, what exactly do we have here with this document? Well, let's back up a little bit in history. Uh, there was a menace of Muslim piracy in the Mediterranean Sea that uh, had been going on for hundreds of years at least against white Christian sailing vessels. And uh, I don't have the documentation right in front of me, but I was reading the other day that uh, there's British historical uh, documentation shows that at one time there were there were. Can the listen to this? This will this will stagger stagger most people that don't know this. There were over thirty five thousand white Christian European slaves being held on the north coast of Africa. So in 1797, the, the U.S. ratified what is a longer name to it, and it's otherwise known as the Treaty of Tripoli. Now, as circumstances would have it, the American Navy was was practically non-existent at that time. I mean, uh, things went south financially under the Articles of the Confederation. So, you know, we couldn't offer any protection for our trade ships and for our crews, so what happened? We wound up paying a ransom fee to the pirates, which still didn't do much. It didn't do any good as far as uh, alleviating that problem. But, uh, you know, let, let's, let's quote this, this source that is used by the liberal um, and secular and atheist uh, position. The section in question is Article 11 of that treaty. Now, now let me read this here. I'll read the whole thing, so people get a good handle on this. Article 11 of the um, Treaty of Tripoli reads as such, quote, as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims, that's Muslims, the way they pronounced it back then, and as the said states never have entered in, into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries, end quote. Now, the main point this verse picked out of that, it says, and it does say it, it says in this treaty, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, let's cover some crucial facts about this treaty that have been, you know, shall we say, you know, conveniently swept under the rug by the mainstream establishment educational system right now. First of all, let's get clear on this. 
There is no original Treaty of Tripoli in existence anywhere, and there hasn't been for well over 200 years. All right? Now, another thing to understand, the the U.S. ratified Treaty of Tripoli that, that's cited today as the original was actually, it, it was an English version copy of an Arabic version copy of the Arabic original that is also now missing. <laughs> okay? So here we go again. Yeah, so an, another thing that's crucial to understand is, uh, talking about the Arabic version of that treaty, there is no Article 11 in the Arabic version of that treaty. Now, across the board, you know, experts in the field of, of studying these early treaties now agree, and they, they have to admit that Article 11 was unofficially inserted into that English copy, and it was, it was most probably by an American diplomat by the name of Joel Barlow. Now, now this fellow uh, helped to, to negotiate the treaty, and uh, he also translated it from Arabic into English. And lo and behold, Mr. Barlow was a known skeptic of Christianity at that time. So, you know, when this tampered English translation of the treaty was presented to Congress for ratification, and in spite of Article 11 that was, that was in there, it was inserted, well, they had to pass the treaty out of, of what we might call immediate political urgency. And, uh, you know, their primary goal was we, we had to quickly stop the militant pirate attacks that were, that were taking place upon the American ships in the Mediterranean. Now, so, you know, because of that situation at hand, it, it had to be dealt with right away, and there was, there was no time to redraft such a treaty and run it through those diplomatic channels, which were very slow in those days anyhow. So, you know... Uh, that point is 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 completely uh, uh, not understood. Uh, furthermore, and here's something that is that is completely ignored and hidden that we're never told about that treaty. Eight years later, when America gained the military upper hand on that situation, the Treaty of Tripoli was renegotiated, and that was in 1805. And the so-called non-Christian Article 11 was immediately removed by the American officials. And it's, it's completely absent from the real and final treaty. Now, that's what the liberal atheists and the humanists never tell anybody. And, I, you know, actually, I, I doubt if most of them have even read the treaty, let alone realize what a huge blunder they're committed by, you know, pretending to be uh, historical specialists on treaties. So, you know, any, anybody can verify what I'm telling you tonight. This is all, it's all confirmed in recorded history, and it's on the books right in our own congressional certified reports. Um, let, let me let me say a quote here talking about congressional uh, reports. You know, it's no surprise from the, uh, we might call it the definitive study on the Treaty of Tripoli in the Hunter Miller notes from the uh, government printing office of 1931. Uh, we read this under, uh, it, it's, uh, Hunter Miller was a, was an, was an attorney. His, his uh, specialty was uh, treaties and international affairs. And Hunter Miller, in the government printing office notes about the Treaty of Tripoli, he made this note regarding the Barlow translation. I'm going to read it here. Here's what Hunter Miller says. Quote, As even a casual examination of the annotated translation of the 1930 uh, Hunter Miller notes, the Barlow translation is at best a poor attempt at a paraphrase or a summary of the sense of the Arabic. And even as such, its defects throughout are obvious and glaring. Most extraordinary and wholly unexplained is the fact that Article 11 of the Barlow translation, with its famous phrase, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, does not exist at all. 
there is no Article 11, end quote. So, you know, since the Arabic version of the treaty in Tripoli uh, didn't have Article 11 in it and the U.S. copy did, well, then why did President John Adams and Congress pass it? We, we, might, we might ask that question. The answer is it becomes uh, extremely clear if we study the diplomatic chess game that was, was going on at that time. Um, these Barbary pirates, uh, they thought that they were just uh, ever so cool and slick and they had one over on the Americans because the Americans didn't actually have a navy to defend themselves yet. So uh, they didn't realize, though, that our American leaders of our yet very young country, they were no dummies in their own right. Now, not, Americans might not have had a navy back then, but one thing they knew, and that was law. And a treaty contract to be valid has to be the same contract in every word signed by both parties. And, and this treaty was not. The, the copies being signed were different. The, the American version had an Article 11 stuck in it, and the Arabic version did not have it. So there could be no lawful, what's called a meeting of the mind, as far as contract law goes. Now, a definition of the, of the meeting of the mind is a, it's a term that's used in contract law to refer to the uh, mutual understanding and agreement on the same terms of uh, an applicable contract. So um, mutual comprehension is essential to a valid contract. So President Adams knew the fine points uh, of what they were doing, and so did Congress. So actually, they were buying time until they could build a navy and settle things the, the only way these pirates understood, and that's namely by blowing them off the coast of North Africa, which the next president, Thomas Jefferson, did. So uh, that's what we have with that treaty. Now, uh, another question to consider about this whole this whole matter, uh, people say, well, yeah, President John Adams signed that treaty, so he must have been an anti-Christian too and, and uh, secularist constitutionally. Well, did President John Adams, uh, who signed that dubious treaty, did he disagree with the Constitution that says our, our basis of liberty is, is a blessing? And the answer to that is emphatically no. Okay. Now, President Adams never rejected the Christian law of the Union uh, upon which we were united. Now, here's what John Adams wrote in a letter to Thomas Jefferson dated June 28, 1813, on precisely how he felt and how he viewed the governmental blessings of liberty in the United States. Here's President John Adams. Here's what he said to, to Thomas Jefferson. And I'm, I'm quoting this from John Adams' works to Thomas Jefferson on June 28, 1813. Quote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And what were these general principles? I answer, the general principles of Christianity in which all these sects were united. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, and that those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature, end quote. And right. that's from yeah. President John Adams, who signed the Tripoli of Treaty with the phony, non-Christian insert placed in it by Joel Barlow. If I can interject, Adams mm -hmm. was actually educated to the clergy, just like James Madison was educated for the clergy, chose to be a lawyer instead, just like James Madison chose to be a lawyer instead. I, I, I deeply believe that, that God put these men in the, position, the positions they were in for a, a serious purpose. And, well, and the Adams, 
deeply pious Christian who 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 actually dismissed the the rituals and the pomp of, of churchianity. Well, that's and, what they were and, doing. Right, and, and and he was a deeply pious Christian who who was actually he was educated as a clergyman. He was he, he was very educated, and you know he he knew the law on on treaties. The treaty was bogus. And it wasn't the same treaty anyhow that the, that the uh, Muslims were signing. So whether we passed it or not, that would be void. And, and uh, you know, so what do we have with this? You know, we try to use the Treaty of Tripoli argument, which is, is based on a tangled web of confusion and, and underhanded diplomacy to somehow imply that the Constitution is not Christian. Well, uh, it's simply not workable from either a, a lawful or historical angle when we look at what was transpiring with that particular treaty. So if the Antichrist want to say that the original government of America wasn't Christian, they're going to have to find some other source in attempting to do so because they won't find it in the Treaty of Tripoli. They're going to have to look somewhere else. Just as an aside, white slavery, well, whites being taken captive by Muslims in, into slavery in Africa, that mm-hmm. was a problem for a thousand years before Thomas Jefferson. Before Thomas and, Jefferson. And that in that thousand-year period, there were probably several million whites taken into slavery in Africa. You know, when that, we built our navy, Thomas Jefferson asked the other European nations to help us go defeat those Barbary pirates, and they turned us down. We we went over there and did it on our own. We we stopped what had been going on for for like said, thousands of years. Well, well, the Turks were at the gates of Venice in 1680. Well, and lo and behold, you know, the, the, <laughs> we're talking about the Constitution, the, the battleship that led our, our, our Navy over there to, to end this white slavery problem was the USS Constitution. <laughs> so it was. The, the Turks were at the gates of Vienna in 1680. The, the mm-hmm. Venetians had defeated the, the um, Turkish navies in, 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 in the 16th century in, in several major battles, but mm-hmm. the Turks were gates of Vienna, that they had Vienna under siege in the 1680s. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, these are all truths that haven't been told. You know, we, we're told these things like the Treaty of Tripoli and the, what Mark brought up about the the, um, the, the no religious oaths. You know, a, a lie can travel half, halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. So, you know, well, sometimes right, exactly. a, fal- a falsehood is a little slow in being exposed. You know, but, but I'll tell you what I've seen with a little prayer and some homework uh, you know, God's people are capable of finding the truth and taking a stand for what's right. And, and we're seeing a lot of good brothers and sisters doing exactly that today. There, there's a lot of digging for truth in many areas. And, and I, I think the people are really getting tired of being lied to for so long on so many different subjects. Now, if I may uh, point out, Bill, we've got about 10 minutes left in the program uh, yes. before we're shut off. Um I know we're not going to get to the rest of the outline here. Um, so with the remaining time, uh, is there anything particular that uh, that you wanted to offer? Well, you know, uh, I, here, here's one thing. You know, let, let's just look at this. Let's just let's just put this in. In we're going to run out of time here. I would like to make this one point. You know, we're talking about the the founding fathers being being criticized for being masons. And and uh, you know we're not going to have time to go in that as as we should. I know you probably both have something on it, but um, you know just quickly uh, 
the masonry that was in, in in America at the time of the Revolution was was not Illuminati at all. I mean, that was uh, Adam Weishaupt who you know established that the time frame. We're talking about the time frame mark in 1776 in Europe. Now, at the end of George Washington's uh, administration, he expressed concern that the Illuminati was infiltrating America with their with their uh, you know violent revolutionary type ideas. Uh, I'd like to just make this one point. I don't I don't know if we'll run out of time, but but um, you know, uh, we have ministers today that are criticizing the founding fathers uh, for being Masons and for being non-Christians. You know, if we had an, an impartial uh, board where we, we were comparing what the founding fathers did compared to compare to what we do today, and especially those ministers that criticize them, let's make a list of what we have. You know, some founding fathers were members of a club that, that, that wasn't even Illuminati in membership, and, and that's about all we have on them. Well, what about today? I mean, no. Well, I think I have a very uh, succinct quotation from uh, Dr. James Bellington, who was librarian of the U.S. Congress, and he said this, quote, The revolutionary ideology of the 18th and 19th century was shaped not so much by the rationalism of the French Enlightenment, as is generally believed, as by the occultism and pro-romanticism of Germany. However, this is not proof that the Founding Fathers nor the American Freemasons were successfully infiltrated by the Illuminati, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I think that says a lot because uh, I think the the common uh, analogy is made that uh, the Adam Weishaupt group was the same uh, character within the American lodges, and it simply was not true. Uh, in fact, I have another quotation from uh, George Washington uh, responding to um, uh, Reverend G.W. Snyder, and uh, who had sent him the book Proofs of a Conspiracy, uh, in which John Robinson exposes Freemasonry as being infiltrated by the Illuminati. Well, Washington replied back, and uh, this was 15 months before he died in 1799, and cleared his involvement with Freemasonry by saying, quote, to correct an error you have run into of my presiding over the English lodges in this country. The fact is I preside over none, nor have I been in one more than once or twice within the last 30 years. <laughs> Washington told the Reverend that he didn't share his opinion about the Illuminati's presence in America through Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. And instead, he was convinced that the Illuminati reached America through the Jacobins, the, the radical French group that launched the uh, French Revolution. The clear, mm -hmm. the, the clear historical distinction is between the Christian patriots and the Jacobin Catholic conspirators. Exactly. Right. right and that's on historically at target, Mark. And do you have Washington's other quote in front of you there from the Library of Congress to, to George to, to G. W. Snyder? Because before you go off off the air, because it is exactly what you have said in, in that other letter. Here's another letter dated on from October twenty fourth, seventeen ninety eight. George Washington says this quote It was not my intention to doubt that the doctrine of the Illuminati and the principles of Jacobinism 
had not spread into the United States. On the contrary, no one is more truly satisfied of this fact than I am, end quote. He, he knew there was trouble with the Illuminati coming over. He wasn't part of it. Well, well right, and not even all, the, all of the lodges in Europe were part of it. The, the French Revolution was basically launched out of the Grand Orient Lodge of, of Masonry in France, and, and Benjamin Franklin was the Grand Master of the, the Nine Sisters Lodge, and he has no reason to, to hide it, and, and he seems to be, in, and, and I've read his, all of his biographical material, and he seems to be absolutely oblivious to, to the, uh, the Illuminati conspiracy in Europe, but which, which was in the other lodges. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't. It, it hadn't. Um, it, it hadn't infiltrated all of the Masonic lodges. It it, no. it 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 infiltrated Jacobinism. Infiltrated enough of them to to um, make the revolution succeed. But even the revolution barely succeeded, and and not the way that it was meant to. It, it was. Um, even though the the Jews did prevail in in slaughtering much of the French nobility and the Catholic um, clerics, it, it still didn't it still didn't work out as, as absolutely planned for them. And it, it wasn't that they didn't have the total control of masonry that we like to think they had, even though they had a great deal of influence in many key Masonic lodges. And that influence didn't come to the Americas until in any force un- until after the revolution and and we can't imagine that they could have um taken over all of the masonic lodges overnight the jacobins what would no, they the, 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 the time frame would be off right absolutely the the masonry of benjamin franklin from what i've read in in his um in his biographical material, it, it was basically just a, a good old boys club. It, it was just, it, it was pretty innocuous. It, it was for public service. It, it was to make business connections and, and things like that, that he actually explicitly mentioned benefiting from it in, in those areas. But but it wasn't to conspire to take over the government or undermine the, any future governments and and these men, so many of them being Masons and being in control in the positions they were in, certainly didn't have to conspire to do anything. That they didn't need a conspiracy if they wanted to subvert the, the, the freedom and independence of this nation. It, it's it's absurd. It, it it's the same line of thinking that makes us that that makes fools think that Hitler was a Rothschild or Jesus was a Jew. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, we've heard it all. We're hearing it all again. And um, you know, one thing I'd like to point out. I don't know if we run out of time here, but you know, what, what Mark Mark mentions that this is an attack on our on on our um, heritage. And um, our heritage in the Constitution is a contract between white Christian, not only just between the white Christian people, it's a contract between the generations. And I think this is something that's over, you know, overlooked. Proverbs thirteen twenty two says, "A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children." In Proverbs seventeen six, it says, "Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers." So, um, you know, you destroy the heritage of the people, and uh, it's an attack that has to be countered, 
As I was talking to Ken earlier this week, uh, it struck me that the theme for tonight's show um, seems to resonate with influence. And um, that's why we it's crucial that we um, are vigilant in, um, in, in making that influence in the hearts and minds of our kindred uh, in this country uh, that we do have a Christian heritage and that we can fight to, um, to claim what God has given us. Uh, and at the same time, uh, and, and they, uh, they can't sleep unless they, they cause mischief. And, and that's the antichrist element who uh, uh, works incessantly to um, uh, move their influence forward mm-hmm. and uh they they have a, a powerful media at their disposal but um you know uh well, where there's Micah, a will Micah there's chap- a way and yeah like mm-hmm. a chapter two and, and thank god for this program tonight that yeah, uh, I, that we I can get the message program. out talking about the heritage you know and, and how how they how they are are bent on oppressing Micah chapter two says and they covet fields and take them by violence, and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. That's how important it is for, you know, as Pastor Downey said, we, we began tonight, it, it's our heritage that's under attack. And it's a contract between our, our generations that's under attack, which was made by the preamble for our Christian posterity. Now, I'd like to say one thing, though, you know, with all this being said, I, I want to assure the listeners that this is not a message of defeat. You know, we're, we're going to win this struggle, so it, it's just a matter of which side a person wants to be on. Are, are, are we going to be on the side of God's spirit of victory that it was poured out upon our founding fathers when they, when they defeated the world system of their day, or, or are we going to follow after every wind of doctrine that takes us off of the straight and narrow path? I think that's a decision for each of us to make. We well, shall contend for the faith. I would have to agree. A lot of people, even in identity Christianity, are, are way too caught up in every little conspiracy theory and, and far too accepting of it before they actually sit and examine the facts and, and the motives and, and, and sort things out in, in an academic manner. Yeah, so true. Well, well, thank you for, for, for um, being here tonight. And, and, we thank uh, you, Bill. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. I tell you what, Brother Bill, you have a great forum, and, and, and keep up the good work. Absolutely. God bless well, you both. <laughs> Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, Bill. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. God bless.